Thanks, Catherine. Um, let me pray again. Father, um, please would you help us this afternoon to understand what you have to say to us. Please would you help us to listen. Um, Father, please would you fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus and be joyful and thankful because of him. Amen. Well, you know that feeling when you get to the end of a film and you're not quite sure what's going on. It's maybe a slightly disappointing ending. Maybe something about it has left you unsure. Maybe particularly a character. You're not sure if they're really a good guy or a, or a bad guy. Um, if you've seen the film Taken, the original one, I felt a bit like that at the end of the film Taken. Liam Neeson, if you don't know, uh, plays Brian. He's, uh, his ex-wife is Lenore, and their daughter, Kim, is abducted. The um, film is spent with Brian in all his skills, retrieving Kim, who is uh, in Europe. Now, all this time, the main thrust of the film and the main content of the film is spent watching what Brian does and how he rescues Kim. But all along the way, there's this kind of underlying story of um, Brian and his ex-wife, Lenore, and whether or not they'll get back together or what's going on. Lenore has a new partner. He's already been painted as a bit of a dodgy guy. And we're not quite sure what's going on. Now, we get to the end of the film, and there's this scene in the airport, and Brian brings Kim, the daughter who'd been abducted and then rescued, back to um, Lenore and her new partner. And there's this slightly... It's desperate. The, this, this moment in the airport, here it is, and Brian has handed Kim over to Lenore and her partner wait, waiting for them, and you're thinking, this could be it. This could be the moment the couple gets back together. This could be the hope. And Kim gets in the car with the new partner. And um, Lenore says, thank you. And there's this... Well, you can see Liam Neeson's look. He's, he's disappointed. It's a, it's a disappointing end to the film. There is this moment of disappointment because Kim is off with the new partner and Lenore and there's this look of disappointment it's a it's a sad ending but of course we know the film taken it it's like that it it's left unresolved on purpose taken two shortly came after and then taken three <laughs> who knows what's coming next now after all they've been through, after all Brian does to win back Kim, all he does to rescue her, all that he's done to try and prove himself to his ex-wife, all the time desperate to repair that relationship, is it really going to end like this? Is it really going to be that disappointing? Well, Alang said we're this is the end of the first half of, chap of Isaiah, chapter 38 and 39, and it's the last two chapters and the last thing we see of King Hezekiah. So as we come to the close of the first half of the book, the question is, is it really going to end like this? It's King Hezekiah, the, the guy that we'd seen last week was pretty faithful, who'd been, been faithful to God in the face of the Assyrians pressing in. It's unsettling. Is Hezekiah good? Is he bad? 
Can it really end like this? Well, we'll see. Our hope does not rest in human strength. Because look, here's the disappointing, unsettling thing about this narrative. Chapters 38 and 39. Hezekiah, he is that strong king that honoured God in the face of the Assyrians pressing in last week. He prayed to him in faith. But he seems to have lost his edge. Look at verse 1. He's sick to the point of death. His mortality is so obvious. But actually there's more than just a a mortality issue. Look at what he prays in verse 3. When he's told that he's going to die, this is what he prays. Please, O Lord... Remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. Do you see, he's appealing to God that he deserves more time. That's such a long way from what we saw him say last week. Do you remember? He said, please save me. Not because of me, not because of anything I'm like, but that you'd be glorified. Because of your character, he appealed to God based on God, not himself. We see that Hezekiah actually, later on in chapter 38, he does some pretty dodgy stuff that we'll come back to later. Look, here's the question. What's happened to Hezekiah? Well, that's where the details of what's recorded in this little narrative can really help us out. A few details that really help us. Look at verse 5. Isaiah's message to Hezekiah from God in the face of death when he's heard that he's going to die, here's the message to him. 15 years will be added to your life. Now, we can do a bit of maths here and work out what's going on. Something that that helps us see what Isaiah's doing as he pulls together the narrative. Um, Hezekiah died in 687 B.C., So if we go back 15 years, the 15 years that were added to his life, confusing because we're BC, so back is adding, that takes us to 702 BC. Now, you'll remember last week was uh, the siege of Jerusalem at 701 BC. So what's being recorded at the beginning of chapter 38 is happening before what was recorded last week. That's important, not because, not because it's um, a tight chronological history of Hezekiah's life, because actually this shows us that's not what Isaiah is trying to do. He's not trying to help us to make a call on how good Hezekiah is. He's not trying to help us to make a call on whether or not Hezekiah died in favour with God or, or what happened, but... Isaiah is pulling together his book, not in a tight chronological order, but as we come to the end of the first half, the big block, chapters 1 to 39, he's making a point with his strategic positioning of of how the half closes. This is the last record of King Hezekiah. The last book, the last bit in the first half of the book. And it is for a reason. Because we get to this point and God has judged his people with the rod of the Assyrians. 
He's stretched out his hand in judgment against God's enemies. There is a remnant left. And there is a king on the throne in the line of Jesse, a son of David. See, we get to halfway and it looks like a lot of the things promised in the first half of the book are already will come to be. But what we see in chapters 38 to 39 is Isaiah carefully re-emphasizing what has been promised. See, the reason we've got a slightly uncomfortable ending, it feels unresolved, is because that's exactly what it is. That's what Isaiah is showing us. God graciously used Hezekiah in the rescue of God's people, Jerusalem, and he graciously used him to deliver them from the Assyrians. But King Hezekiah is not the ultimate solution. He's certainly not God's final rescue plan. 38 and 39 show us he's an unfaithful failure just like the rest of God's people have been throughout the book. But, you see, we need to recognise that. We need to see that Hezekiah is not where all the hope lies. The story hasn't changed. God's people are still in desperate need. He wants to show us Isaiah. He wants to help us see. He wants to build a picture that... There is hope in despair. Our hope does not rest in human strength. God's ultimate solution is not merely a son of David, not just a son of David, but there's hope from despair because God saves sinners. And Isaiah, it's like he's setting up the sequel, the second half of the book. Look, if you've not heard loud and clear from the first half of the book of Isaiah, then we have to see it now. Humans are in desperate need. Humans are in desperate need. Throughout Isaiah, even God's people have been described as corrupt, sick, stinking, unfaithful, guilty, rotten, unclean. Look, the solution is not a quick fix. It's not just one good king to sit on the throne. It's not just a restart button for the people of Israel. Our hope doesn't rest in human strength. Maybe you sat in the room this afternoon and you'd call yourself a Christian, you've been a Christian for a while, or, or maybe just become a Christian. It's vital that we know that there is nothing in and of ourselves in our own strength, nothing that we bring to God that has the power to sort ourselves out. Nothing in and of ourselves. When you become a Christian, it's not that you've just hit the restart button. You've not just gone back to square one. It's not just a fresh start that we can try the best we can. And if you're sat in the room and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian... This is brilliant news because it's not just a new start where you have to try and try and try again. Our hope does not rest in human strength. Last week I told you uh, 
about Gavin, the guy that I met on a motorway bridge. We were driving home from a youth group. I had people in the car, and he went from standing by the side of the road to standing on the railings. Now, I didn't finish the story. I didn't tell you what happened next. As you can imagine, I was forced to drive away and leave Gavin there with the police and and those that were speaking to him. And I didn't know what happened to him. As you can imagine, for the coming weeks, I was thinking about him a lot. What had happened? How could I find out? I, I checked news articles to see if there was news of a fatality. I, I asked around, but I heard nothing. A few weeks later, I was walking in Tesco's, walking down the middle um, aisle with aisles off to the side, and I turned, looked down the confectionery aisle, was a guy, looked just like Gavin. So I walked down the aisle, and you can imagine in that moment I was overjoyed. Is it him? And at, at the same moment, I was kind of a, a little bit proud, kind of, ah, uh, lifesaver, yeah. I, I mean, it, I was fundamentally just overjoyed. It's him, it's him. And so I, I strode down the aisle to speak to him. And he was just there choosing some sweets. And I said, oh, how are you doing? Are you okay? And he turned and looked at me and he just said, with a blank look on his face, I'm just getting some sweets. It was him, and he had no recollection of who I was. It meant meant nothing to him that I'd I'd looked at him, I'd gone down the aisle to see who he was. He just didn't remember me. And in that moment, I was so humbled. I was reminded of the humbling feeling of standing next to him on the bridge. There was... There was nothing about me that brought anything to that situation. There was no power that I had to affect the situation on the bridge. And, and when I strode down the, the aisle with a bit of a spring in my step, saying, oh, thinking I'd done a great job, he looked at me and didn't know who I was. There was nothing about me that seemed to affect the situation whatsoever. A complete inability to affect the situation if it was down to me my human strength my ability to negotiate I'd be hopeless but look even in the face of Hezekiah's real weakness there is still hope from despair Hezekiah is in despair do you see the poem he writes of his experience it's a poem of despair Let's just look at those four similes quite quickly. The first, my dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. Imagine returning to your tent after a long day, working in the fields, probably not shepherding for us, to find it's been taken away. Look, Hezekiah is just saying that his settled dwelling has been removed. Just when he'd bedded down, just when he thought he was comfortable, it's been taken away. Second picture, like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day to night, you bring me to an end. Picture the weaver sat at the loom, making this intricate pattern, doing a brilliant job, 
getting the, the, um, the material they need off the loom. And just when Hezekiah feels like he's thriving, just when he thinks he's doing a brilliant job, the loom, the source, it's cut. He's forced to roll up his work. God has cut his thread. Third picture, I calmed myself until morning. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. Just when Hezekiah felt like he was recovering. God relentlessly pursued him. I don't know if you've seen one of those videos on some kind of nature channel where a a lion chases after a gazelle, rips it to pieces and just goes and goes and goes, pursues it relentlessly, just keeps going. Hezekiah feels like God is ruthless in, in his chase of him. God's not done with Hezekiah. For a picture, like a swallow or a crane, I chirp. I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. O oh Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. In desperate need, Hezekiah was like a chirping bird. Just picture the, the birds in a nest chirping. They just relent. They cry and cry and cry. If you've had a bird's nest in a hedge or somewhere near your house, you know the relentless nature of crying for help. That's what Hezekiah described. Look, four pictures. Here's the picture. It's absolute despair. See where we're up to in this account? Isaiah's not tying up the loose ends of Hezekiah. Hezekiah's the man for the job. He's the guy everyone needed. He's the perfect king. He's not getting to the end of the book saying Hezekiah was the one we were waiting for. This is not the final solution. But look what Hezekiah recognises still. Verse 17. Behold... It was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. See, Isaiah is recognising God's relentless pursuit of him was for his good. That he'd recognise his own state of desperate need of God, of him to rescue him. That he'd recognise his sinful state. Hezekiah, the good king. But it's then that he's in despair, that he recognises his state, that he recognises God's great love, that he delivers him, that he deals with his sin. See, the solution, it's never work harder, trust in human strength, be better. That When that's never the answer, the answer is always... In Isaiah, it's always been God himself dealing with sin. Not just the stuff that we do wrong, but the state of our hearts. And so what we see here is, is what's needed is not just a good king, it's not just a work of human strength, but a regeneration. And there's hope, even for Hezekiah, there's hope in despair, because... Our hope is in a greater king. That's God's ultimate solution. That's why the story isn't finished in chapter 39. That's why it's unresolved. 
Look, it is a bizarre ending to the first half of the book. It's weird. Chapter 39, look at verse 2. Hezekiah welcomes gladly the king that comes from Babylon. He, he, he gladly shows him round his house. He shows him all the good things. He's, he's, he's really eager to make good friends with this new king, which is ultimately the new superpower that's rising up in the wake of the Assyrians. He's more worried about them and what they make of him than, than he is worried about God in that moment. And look what Isaiah says to Hezekiah, verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried off to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. This should be really, really bad news. Babylon are moving in as the next superpower, and Hezekiah, he's told his sons, are going to serve hand and foot on the king. They're going to be eunuchs at the hands of the king of Babylon. I can't think of any worse news as a father than to be told that your sons are going to be taken off to a distant land castrated and serve a, a king that doesn't honour God and doesn't wish to. This should be the worst news for Hezekiah. It should, be, it should be breaking him. But do you see his response? He doesn't seem bothered. The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. See, see what's in focus for him? Hezekiah is happy because he's going to get a long retirement. He's happy because he's going to be safe. There's going to be peace. There's going to be security in the world. It's a thoroughly unsatisfying end to the book that we see of Hezekiah. But that's why. Because it sets us up for a greater king. There is a greater coming king. Our hope does not rest even in the best of human kings. There's a king to come who will both perfectly honour God, perfectly rule and perfectly reign. The Lord Jesus, in the line of Jesse, not only perfectly fulfils that role of coming king, but he offers hope to a broken humanity. It's not just a restart, it's not just a fresh start, but a complete regeneration is offered through him. When you come to trust in the Lord Jesus, there's a shift in status. When you stand before God, he sees you not as corrupt, sick, stinking, unfaithful, guilty, rotten, unclean, but as clean, white, righteous. You remember chapter 1, verse 18? Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. But it's not just a status change. It's not that the status change has been made and now we've got to rely on our own strength. No, our hope does not rely on human strength. If you trust in Jesus, a regeneration has happened. God has transformed you, has given you the capacity 
to live as he was designed. When we're grafted into Jesus, we have the capacity in us to bear his fruit. Maybe you're listening and you're just tempted to despair. Wrapped up in sin at the moment, feeling guilty about something going on, ashamed of something that's happened in the past. Or maybe you just feel a bit like Hezekiah, trying to make a faithful stand for God, and yet there's moments that it just feels like undermine what you're all about. There's moments that you just happily have peace and security for the rest of your days. That's what Hezekiah said, the last verse. That's what it'd take, peace and security. Maybe you're frustratingly inconsistent when it comes to loving God. You feel like you've let God down. Well, the call for us is not to work hard and try in our own strength, but to cling to the Lord Jesus, this greater King, because he's ultimately the way that God saves sinners. Our hope doesn't rest in our own strength. When we come to recognise how messed up we can be, We don't need just a fresh start. We need the Lord Jesus, the one who stands in our place. We need the Spirit to transform us, to go on transforming us, to be more like him. The question is, when you recognise that, when it it feels like you're letting God down, when you're aware of the times that you're struggling, will you try in your own strength or will you have this great hope will you cling to the Lord Jesus with absolute confidence because God sees his righteousness and God is transforming you by his spirit to be more and more like him will you cling to him in every time of need let's pray Father, thank you that though in and of ourselves we are corrupt, sick, stinking, unfaithful, guilty, rotten, unclean, although in and of ourselves we're weak, Lord, thank you that there is hope for us in despair because the Lord Jesus is the perfect King that we so desperately need. Thank you that in him we have real hope. And Father, thank you that in him we have real strength. Father, please would you help us to cling to him. Amen. We're going to sing Christ alone, cornerstone, the Lord Jesus, in whom we want to cling to. Mm.